Good morning, Calvary Quakertown, and welcome. It's good to have you with us this morning. We're in a series that we're calling For Everyone, and we're making our way through the New Testament letter of Romans, a letter that Paul wrote to some believers in Rome a long time ago. And as we're working our way through, we said up front that the first couple of chapters are kind of dark and depressing, and we're going to wrap that section up today and move on to the brighter section and the great news that follows, and we'll actually begin that today. Now, how it's going to work this morning, we're going to look at the result, the result of what Paul's been leading towards since the middle of chapter 1. So all the way back in Romans 1.18, Paul began to make his case and it's almost as if he brought human beings into the courtroom. And if you remember, first he looked at the rebellious. Then in chapter 2, the, the righteous. Then the, then the religious. And today we get the result of all of that. But then we're going to look at a review, how we can tie those principles and concepts together by doing a little vocabulary review. So if some of the words have uh, stumped you thus far, hopefully today we'll uh, answer the questions get those definitions tucked away in our head, and we'll have some handles to hold stuff onto. Well, the beginning part of chapter 3 in Romans answers the question, so wait a minute, if we're all guilty, is there any advantage at all to being Jewish? And so, you know, we're children of Abraham according to our bodies and our flesh. Is there no benefit to that at all? And in the first eight, eight verses, Paul says, no, 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 there's a great benefit. The great benefit is an advantage and a responsibility, but there's no favoritism and no free pass. Now that's important for us to keep in mind because we are privileged as well. And we are privileged with the gospel and we're responsible to continue what Jesus started. But we need to hear what Paul's saying to the Jews. Yeah, you're privileged and you're responsible. Well, we're privileged and responsible too. Well, how does that work out? I was thinking about it this week. I have a friend who gets to drive really, really high-end cars. And he gets paid to do it. He works for a car dealer. And he delivers these high-end cars. Or he picks them up and brings them back for servicing. Or sometimes he just has to drive around for like an hour or two while the computer resets. They pay him to do this. And I was thinking to myself, you know... He could just take one of those cars and put it on eBay or something and kind of cash the check. Or he could bring one to my house. We could tuck it in the garage. And he would be suspect. He is kind of shady looking. So uh, he, he may be suspect. And eventually they may find him out. But if we do it correctly, maybe they'd never know. And I can get one of the cars. But he won't do that. And do you know why he won't do that? Because he is faithful to what he's been entrusted with. You see, the word entrusted means that you've been given something, but it's not for you. You've been given it in trust, and you've got to deliver it. That's what Paul says in the beginning of Romans 3. You Jewish folks have been entrusted. God gave you this awesome gift. He gave you his word. He gave you his message, and he said, I want you to live this and share this. That was their mission. I want you to live it and share it. But they failed. They didn't live it and they didn't share it. And now they're guilty. They were entrusted, but they failed 
because they weren't faithful. That's the first part of Romans 3. And then we get to the result in the courtroom. So if you have your Bibles, or if you're using your phone or the app or whatever you got, I'm going to start reading in Romans 3, 9. And here we're going to get the result, the conclusion, the consequence to what he started in 118 and also the transition, which will begin in 21. So here we go. Paul writes, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. The depressing darkness is pierced with the light of the gospel. Well, what in the world's going on here? First of all, we come to the verdict, the conclusion, and it's not pretty. In fact, the verdict is for everyone. Everyone is guilty. Everyone is under the power of sin. No one is righteous. And I know what some of you are sitting there thinking, Charles, come on. Come on. Isn't Paul a little over the top? I know some people that are basically pretty good. After all, I'm better than some really filthy, creepy people. And we can all set up the little scale. Are you trying to say, say that everyone is equally evil and bad and wicked? I'm saying it's all relative. It kind of works like this. We have a couple of staff members here at Calvary Church that are in Italy this morning for a, an anniversary. Two different anniversaries. They're in Italy. I didn't get invited. We'll talk about that when they get back. Um, that means four of them are in Italy. Now just suppose as they're planning their trip to Italy, they're also very cheap. And you don't have to imagine too much. They are cheap. And as they're planning, they're scouring websites for the cheapest airfares. Travelocity. Expedia, pedal planes to Europe. They're, they're trying whatever they can. Well, eventually, as they're having a meeting, trying to come up with the cheapest way there, one of them has a brilliant idea. I can save us tons of money. Let's swim. It's kind of a straight shot, right? And the ocean's still pretty warm these days. So here's what we'll do. We'll get in a car. We'll drive to Ocean City. And we'll, you know, park, we'll get parking for the week and we'll kind of walk out onto the beach. We'll go into the ocean and we'll swim. And you can go right across the Atlantic. You hit Portugal, go around Portugal, Spain, into the Mediterranean, across the Mediterranean to Italy. And we're there. 
And it won't cost us anything. Just the just gas money to get to Ocean City. Now, uh, how successful is this anniversary trip going to be, do you think? Well, maybe the uh, first person, uh, she can't swim at all. So she's 100 yards from shore and she sinks like a rock. And her husband says, well, she would only hold us back anyway. Let's, let's, let's keep going with the rest of us. So they make it. A, well, and they got a mediocre swimmer. So maybe he makes it. 500 yards, maybe, and he sinks, and he's no longer there. The next two are pretty good swimmers. Oh, I forgot to tell you. And Michael Phelps went on the trip, too. So the other couple eventually goes down, you know, a few hundred yards from shore. But old Michael, he's paddling away, right? I mean, he's a mile, five miles, 10 miles. Michael's going to make it, right? 50 miles. You know what? By the time you hit 100 miles, Michael's down, too. So here's the question. Is Michael less drowned than the woman that went down first? No, no, no. They all are in the same predicament. Michael may have swam a little further compared to getting to Italy. None of them can make it. That's the point that Paul's making. You may be relatively better than someone else. Morally, you may be a little better than your freaky neighbor. You may be better than that cantankerous whatever. But compared to the standard of Italy... You're screwed. That's the point. So when Paul says the conclusion is guilty, the verdict is in. Everybody is under the verdict of guilt. Everyone is in the same position. Get it? Now let's add to that motives. Now look, be honest. We're all among friends. Let me just ask you. I want you to raise your hand. How many of you have ever done a good thing for a bad reason? Raise your hand. Come on. Come on. And the rest of you are doing a bad, a bad thing right now because you're lying in church, right? <laughs> I know most of you people. You've done good things for bad reasons. Um, Tim Keller in his book uses this illustration. He says that suppose you're going to help an old lady across, if Kim's here, so an elderly woman across the street. So you go over to the corner and you help the elderly woman across the street. Is that a good thing? Yes, it's a good thing. That's a great deed that you can do. But suppose you're helping her across the street so you can get her on the other side where it's dark. You conquer her in the head and take her purse. <laughs> All of a sudden, a really good deed is not too good, right? It's not too good because your motive was not to help her the other side. Your motive was to get that purse. You get her out of the light, bang, and you take it. Well, suppose you want to help her across the street. And you're not going to rob her, right? You're a little better. You're really hoping she gives you a nice tip for helping her across the street. Oh, here you go. Here's 20 bucks for your trouble. Oh, thank you very much. I wasn't expecting anything. Give me that money. Um, now, you see what I'm saying? You could do a good thing, but now it's for a bad reason again. Or how about this one? You're going to help the elderly woman across the street because you see the pastor on the other side and you want him to use you as an illustration next Sunday in the sermon that you're such a great person helping the old woman across the street. You see, we can do good things for bad reasons. Now, here's the truth. We have never done a good thing for a perfectly good reason ever. You take the most eloquent prayer of repentance you ever prayed, and I'd be willing to bet the motives behind it were mixed at best. So not only are we kind of under the verdict of guilt, we can't make Italy. When we add motives to the conversation 
And God's going to judge our hearts, Paul says, not just our behaviors, our hearts. We're all in a world of trouble. Everyone. The verdict of guilt is for everyone. Talk about total equality. There it is. Now, some of you have another objection. Okay, Charles, maybe I can buy that. But you've never met my old Aunt Ethel. My Aunt Ethel is the sweetest, kindest woman you could ever meet. She's so sweet, you get a cavity just talking to her, right? And, and so she buys Girl Scout cookies by the caseload, even though she doesn't eat them. She stayed with her husband. She took care of him as he wrestled with his life-threatening illness that eventually took his life. She raised three kids as ungrateful as they were. Now she babysits for the grandkids and she's taking care of the great-grandkids. She is the kindest, most gracious, generous woman I have ever met. Are you trying to tell me that somehow she is under the verdict of guilt and she's never done anything? How in the world can you serve a God like that? I said, I don't, I don't. But let's rewind the tape a little bit. Let's fill in some of the gaps according to Romans 1 through 3. For a minute, let's not just entertain how Anne Ethel has treated other people. Let's ask the question how Anne Ethel has treated God. God created this awesome universe, put all the stars up there, gave us this awesome world to live in with trees and flowers and people and exciting things. And, and through that, God kept saying, Ethel, I'm here. Ethel, acknowledge. And Ethel would just kind of close her eyes to that and say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I, I've got stuff to do. I guess I, I can't contemplate all that. And let's just ask the question, do you ever think that Ann Ethel ever had something she didn't want to have heard on her butt dial, on her phone? Do you think Ann Ethel ever complained about those ungrateful kids of hers that never call and come over when they say they will? Look, I know a lot of older Aunt Ethels. They complain about their kids pretty, or at least when I'm there, they complain. Do you think ever Aunt Ethel would have condemned or been super critical about the neighbor who couldn't control the dog and kept her up at night? Do you ever think she would have complained about the politicians here or the people over there? Do you ever think that if, Aunt, if all of Aunt Ethel's conversations were on butt dial, do you ever think she would have done something where she was judging someone else, but she was going to fail in that? Do you ever think that happened? Oh, yeah, and then you have the Bible's theme that says the Holy Spirit is continually nudging and prodding and elbowing old Aunt Ethel. And so as Aunt Ethel's going through life, the Holy Spirit's saying, hey, Ethel, hey, Ethel, your butt dial's on. You, you're not living a perfect life here. You're screwing up. Ethel, come clean with what you're doing wrong. Recognize that God has made provision for your screw up. That's what Jesus is about. Remember you went to that Christmas Eve service and remember it was beginning to make sense and the spirit's kind of nudging and elbowing and Ethel saying, no, I don't need that. Pushing God away, pushing God away. Well, she pushes God away year after year, decade after decade until eventually she has gone through the process of rejection and substitution and at the end, God says, have it your way, Ethel. Have it your way. I gave you creation. I talked to you about your heart. I nudged you on the inside by the spirit. You rejected and substituted. Have it your way. And Ethel will live with the verdict she chose throughout her whole life. That's what Romans 1 through 3 is saying. Our objections evaporate in the presence of Paul's arguments. 
And Paul's doing nothing more than laying out before us what the Bible says from beginning to end. That's the conclusion. But we're not going to stay with the conclusion. We're going to do a little vocabulary work today. Um, did any of you used to, do any of you, did, did you used to like vocabulary tests in school? I know some of you did. You were the curve breakers that got the rest of the C's and stuff while you were acing them all. And, oh, use the word in a sentence, right? So I'm going to kind of tell you what the words mean, and then I'll kind of try to illustrate them a little bit. Um, but here's what you have to know first. Every discipline, every line of business, you're, wherever you work, has a language, right? And it's almost like your language, it's compressed language. Um, you, you create a language and it becomes shorthand so that you don't have to go through the long description. Everybody knows what you mean. So I wrote two sentences here and I'm going to read them and then I'll ask you if anybody knows what I said. They both actually make sense. Here we go. Number one. Free cash flow and economic value added are much better indicators of the financial health of an organization than EBITDA, EBIT or operating income. How many of you know what I just said or something about it? A couple. I would say if you have your hand up, you're either an accountant or a CEO. That's a real financial sentence that makes perfect sense. Now, here's another one. Judicial restraint imposed legislatively in, metal, in many states of the powers of prosecutors to null pros may have derived from repeated denial of suppliant's request for writs of mandamus and the demise of qui pro qui tom actions. How many of you know what I said? You're either a lawyer or a criminal. <laughs> Actually, they're the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, notice, both of those sentences are filled with jargon. They're filled with vocabulary. They make perfect sense to the people in the know, but to the rest of us, we scratch our heads and say, what? Speak in English. The problem is theology the Bible has a language and the words may have begun as picture words and metaphors, but the words have kind of become technical terms that we hear once in a while. We think we know we move on to the next word. Well, this morning, we're not going to move on. We're going to kind of pull out and dust off some of these terms because the terms can help us like handles. Here's what I mean. Did you ever... Uh, you ever try to crazy glue something that is broken? Yeah, I'm not sure if you're like me, but whenever I crazy glue something, most of the time I can get it back together, but always my fingers are glued together, right? And every once in a while when I'm doing that, I have this thought. I wish God would crazy glue the gospel inside my heart and my head. Because I kind of get it, but I'm always losing my grip on it. And then I start, you know, I'm doing rejection and stuff. I wish God would just crazy glue that stuff in my heart and in my head so I don't forget all the time and start doing something else. You ever feel like that? I, well, there is no crazy glue. In fact, the gospel in my heart and in my head is much more like trying to hold your drink after you've eaten two giant slabs of ribs. It keeps kind of slipping out. That doesn't mean the gospel's slippery. It means our hearts are slippery, just like your hands are all greased up from eating the ribs. You can't hold on. The gospel's fine. But we lose our grip because our hearts are slippery. Our heads are slippery. But vocabulary words can be like handles. That's why Outback gives you a mug with a handle on it. 
So when your hands are all greasy, you can still hold on, right? Well, vocabulary words can be like handles. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through some vocabulary words from Romans 1 to 3. They're all in there. And hopefully you'll get some handles. Might not be crazy glue, but it'll help you hold it a little better. All right, here's the first one from the first verse of the book. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. The first one we're going to look at is Christ. Now, some of you are thinking, boy, Paul kind of got that backwards, right? Isn't it like Jesus Christ? Like Christ is Jesus' last name, not his first name. Oh, I know. It's like on some government forms where you have to say Zimmerman Charles. So Paul's doing Christ Jesus. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is his role. Christ is his job. The word Christ is a Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Messiah. Same word. So in Hebrew, it's Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. Same word, same idea. Two different languages. Well, what the heck does that mean? All it means is anointed. They pour oil on your head. Now, how gross is that, right? They get all slimy, pour oil on your head. Well, in the ancient world, three different offices got oiled. Prophets, priests, and kings. They would all get slimed with oil, pour oil on their head. They were anointed for the job. But as you read through the Old Testament, though, the prophet and the priest oiling kind of fades away. And by the time you get toward the later books of the Old Testament, Isaiah in particular, oiling, anointing, Messiah almost always means king. And the way it's pictured is, and the way all of Jesus' original followers were thinking, okay, when the new king comes, right? That's Messiah, that's Christ. When the king comes, since Rome has its boot on our throat, the new king's going to show up. He's going to kick some Roman butt. He's going to rule and we, his people, will be in. That's what's going to happen. Well, they were freaked out because Jesus shows up and rather than winning a military victory, he's executed by the Romans he came to defeat. And they're shaking their heads and saying, how can he be the Messiah? How can he be the Christ? But what did we sing this morning as Justin led us? But on that third day, he began to breathe, his heart began to beat, and that king is alive forever. That's, so Christ is king, right? Uh, that, that's the first one. So who is Jesus? He's the king, the rightful king of the universe. So remember when we've been talking about next word, gospel. Gospel just means good news. And I've said to you numerous times, gospel doesn't just mean good news for us. First and foremost, it means good news about Jesus. Good news about him. And what's it saying? The king is here. He's arrived. The king is here. Look at all the vocabulary words that we have in 16 and 17 from Romans 1. I underline the ones we'll talk about. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then a the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Lots of code words in there, right? A whole lot of words that are jargon. You got to kind of be in church to figure out. Well, we're going to unpack them today. Gospel. Good news. The king has arrived. But as usual... God surprises us, right? So rather than doing the expected and anticipated, he does something radically different. 
He wins through an apparent defeat because it's not just the political enemy he defeats, it's sin and death itself. Wow. Secondarily, it's good news for us because we're included in that plan of redemption and salvation. Next word. Well, that's the salvation word. Now, again, that's kind of a churchy word, right? I say salvation, and some of you may think, oh, I know, stained glass and organ music. Others of you may think, no, 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 I think of pompous arrogance and um, irrelevance. Well, regardless of what you think, the word doesn't mean any of that. The word salvation just means you're in a predicament you can't get out of. So I'll tell you a predicament. You're on the 35th floor of a high-rise, and floors 20 through 30 are ablaze below you. You cannot get out going down. At that point, you don't need a book talking about how birds fly. What do you need? You cannot help yourself. You can't jump. You can't do a swan dive at the 35th floor. There's no net that will hold you, right? No big ball that will bounce you back up. You're in a world of trouble. If something or someone from outside of yourself does not come and rescue you, you're dead. That's salvation. That's rescue. That's what the Bible means. We are in a predicament that we can't get out of by ourselves. So you need to be rescued. You need to be saved. We still use the word like that. It means you're in a predicament you cannot get out of. The first message in the series, I said that that message of salvation is highly offensive to people because that message says three things. One, you're wrong. How you're putting life together is wrong. What you think about God and yourself and your good works and judging, it's wrong. God is right, you're wrong. That's pretty offensive, right? Tell some people they're wrong. Secondly, self-help doesn't help. You're on the 35th floor, you can't help yourself. If there's a fire, 15 floors burning below you, you're in a, if something doesn't come save you, you're dead. And lastly, the way up is down. And not in the illustration with the building. The way up is down. Jesus comes to win the victory, not by galloping in on a white horse, defeating all the Romans, he takes our sin and punishment on himself, pays what we owe, and gives us the freedom that that brings. That's salvation. Well, here's the next one. And the next one's a little harder. Righteousness. Somebody, oh, yeah, boy, this is really a religious word. Righteousness. That's kind of irrelevant. No, it's not. In fact, righteousness is what drives every one of us every day. Righteousness is all about a resume. Some of you may be too young to have done a resume, but you're, put, you're doing grades in school and stuff. You're working on a resume. Here's how resumes work. On a resume, you want to have zero condemnations, or as few as possible, and multiple commendations. Resumes laud our commendations and hide our condemnations. If you want to help with any of our children's ministry here, from nursery all the way up, we'll ask you to fill in an application. And then we, look, we do a righteousness test. You know what we do? We send your application to the state police in Pennsylvania, and we send it to the crime, FBI crime thing, and we make sure there are no condemnations in your record. And we do that because we don't want derelicts working with our kids, right? So we want to kind of, so we make sure there are no condemnations in the record. What are we doing? We are doing a righteousness survey. When you apply for a job, you give a resume. How many of you list all your condemnations on your resume? 
I flunked out of college twice, didn't pass this thing. I can't add three numbers together. I want to be an accountant. No, no, no. We, 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 we hide our condemnations. That's why they ask for references. They know you're going to lie on a resume. They ask for references, hoping they'll find somebody honest out there that'll tell us what you're really like, right? So you list all of your commendations. I've had this education. I've had these experiences. I took this company from being in the red to being multiple hundreds of million dollars in the black. I am a genius. Hire me, right? You list your commendations, not your condemnations. References kind of fur that all out. Now, here's the point. Every one of us goes through life building our resume. Some of you build your resume by spending lots of time looking in the mirror. It's not work. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you, Right? You, you want to build your resume by having a certain look. Or maybe you build your resume by accumulating a bunch of stuff or having lots of money or having power, a certain position. Maybe living in a certain neighborhood, driving a certain kind of car. We build our resume, right? That's all about righteousness. We are putting together something on paper or at least in our heads that will commend us to other people. So our work with righteousness is trying to hide the condemnations and put all the commendations out there. Hide the condemnations, parade the commendations. We're building a resume. Here's what Paul says. All of your resumes flunk you. You're flunked out. Not one of you has a resume that will even begin to commend you before God. Your resumes cause verdict to be guilty. My favorite two words, maybe in the Bible, certainly in this chapter. Look at the first two words of verse 21 in chapter 3. So what are we all doing? We're all working on a resume, right? We're trying to hide the condemnations. We're trying to lift up the commendation. We're going through life trying to do that. And Paul said it doesn't work. Everyone is under the same verdict, guilty, condemned. But now, but now. It changes everything. You know, you come across a but, I don't mean a but, but, when you come across a but, B-U-T, and that means you're going to go in a different direction now. So all through the first two and a half chapters of Romans, Paul's been going down this road. So let's bring the rebellious in. Oh, they're guilty. Let's bring the righteous in. Oh, they're guilty. Let's bring the religious in. They're guilty. Everybody is under sin. No one has righteousness. You're all messed up. But, huh? And then he says, but, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Look at this. This righteousness is given. It's not earned. It's given. This righteousness is a gift. It's not something, it's not wages. You don't earn it. It's a gift. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The but God says this. You need to stop working on your resume through your performance. Give that drill up and accept the gift of righteousness as Jesus gives his resume to you. Righteousness is all about God looking at you and reading the resume of Jesus. No condemnations, all commendations given to us. Jesus took the resumes that we put together and he gives us his resume. Talk about a but that we all need in the middle of Romans 3. Well, that's righteousness. And we got another big fancy word. Justification. 
Justification. Now, actually, the English word really helps us here. Have you ever heard someone try to justify himself or herself? Let me tell you two simple stories. Both true, by the way. Um, a good friend of mine, years ago, when his kids were, I guess, teenagers, they went to New York, and as they were uh, kind of, in, they were old enough to kind of wander around themselves. And so uh, my friend said, "Now look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to meet back here in two hours. That'll give us time to get into the show. Go wherever you want. Hey, be careful. This isn't like Souderton. We're in a big city now." Lots of crazy people up here, right? Keep your hands in your pocket. Keep your money in the front. Keep your jackets buttoned. It's scary up here, right? Two hours, we're meeting back here. Well, two hours comes, and uh, they're all back except the one son. He comes back about two hours and ten minutes. Ten minutes late. He comes back without his coat. It's winter. Dad loses it. Didn't I tell you? To be careful. What'd you do? Take your coat when you're eating somewhere, put it back at school. Somebody took you, you left it somewhere. Somebody took it. I can't believe, I can't take you anywhere. Well, anyway, eventually the son says, Dad, um, can I explain? What happened? Well, two blocks over there was this homeless man. It looked like he was really cold, and I gave him my coat. What was the son doing? He was justifying. Notice, he didn't change the fact that he didn't have a coat. He still didn't have a coat. He changed the perspective of what happened. That's, justification is a perspective word. It's not an actual word. Nothing actually changed, but the perspective of the dad changed. Hey, here's another one. You ever uh, type in a word, you know, and on Word now, it searches your stuff. So I, I typed in, I guess when Florence was hit, I typed in hurricane. And um, I, I got an old document I had written years ago when Hurricane Floyd hit. I don't even know when that was. Remember Hurricane Floyd? And so here, here's the incident of Hurricane Floyd. And I relived the agony of Hurricane Floyd. Hurricane Floyd hit, and my daughters, one was in middle school at that time, and one was in elementary school, and they were getting an early dismissal because Hurricane Floyd was going to flood the earth, right? Uh, so Hurricane Floyd hits, and so Kim leaves, my wife, she leaves to go to the middle school to pick up Ashley, my oldest daughter. She gets to the middle school. Kids are all coming out, playing in the rain, dancing around. She goes, where's Ashley? Ashley Ashley never comes out. She drives back home thinking, huh, I wonder if Ashley kind of got by me, went home, goes home. Ashley's not there. She calls me frantic. I can't find Ashley. Well, did you go to the school and look for her? What? No, I have to go pick up Megan now. You go to the, to the junior high school. I go to junior high school. I go up, nobody's there. I go in, see the principal or whatever's there. My daughter didn't come out. Do you have any leftovers or... Uh, yeah, we have three kids that weren't picked up. Come on into the gym. I go in, and so I'm examining all three to make sure if they're mine. Same height. No, that's no, not. It wasn't, she wasn't, any, actually wasn't any of them. Well, now um, the anger is disappearing, and it's just fear at this point, right? Some maniac in Hatfield has my kid, right? So I go home. Kim's running around in the rain. We can't. Well, eventually, one of those trips back home in the midst of all this panic, Ashley called. This is a good reason. They didn't have cell phones back. This is a good reason to give your kid a cell phone, by the way. Ashley eventually calls. I answer the phone. Hey, Dad, what are you doing? I'm getting ready to punish you. Where are you? Uh, by the way, you're grounded for the rest of your life. And then some. Don't ever go out again. Where are you? I'm at Jessica's. What are you doing at Jessica's? Dad, let me explain. You better explain. Your mother's soaking wet. She's going to kill you when she finds you. Dad, you don't understand. Here's what happened. They came over to loudspeaker in the school and they said all the walkers whose parents are here and they read their names, they never read my name. 
So I thought mom was somewhere else. And so Jessica said, well, come on on the bus with me. We'll go home. You can call your mom from there. So I thought mom wasn't there. I went on the bus, went home with Jessica. And I'm calling when I got there. Ashley was trying to justify herself. She was doing a pretty good job, too. <laughs> Notice, she didn't change the reality that she didn't wait, but she changed the perspective of what. That's what justification is. Justification is a change in perception. Just like at the end of a wedding, when the pastor says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. <laughs> Where do you see what you're in for? Um, no, no, you don't say <laughs> Nothing really changes. There he is, there she is. But everything, the perspective is now radically different, right? Everything's different. The pronouncement doesn't actually change anything, but the perception changes everything. That's what justification is. Everything changes because the perception has changed. What's the perception that's changed? Jesus took your resume full of condemnation and gave you his resume full of nothing but commendation. And the perspective of God is, you are now right with me. Well, how does that transaction happen? It happens by faith. That's what Romans says. That's what the Bible says from beginning to end, faith. Faith just means trust. Faith means believe. They're all the same word. Faith doesn't mean that you just give assent to something. Faith means you trust it enough to put your life into those, into the hands. So it's kind of like this. So we live in a world where people say things like this. It doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe it with all your heart. You ever hear that? You've heard that, right? The Bible and common sense tells you that's ridiculous. What? Believe anything you want with all your heart and it's right? Okay. So let's take person A and ladder A. And person A has all the faith in the world that ladder A can hold his fat body. But person A climbs onto the ladder and it's all kind of ratted out. But he has all the faith in the world. The ladder will hold him. But the ladder isn't going to hold him. It's not his faith that's going to keep him from getting hurt. It's the stupid ladder as he crumbles to the ground. Here's person B who is very timid and very afraid and hates heights. But he's got an aluminum ladder there. It's easily going to be able to hold his weight. But he's very cautious and scared as he steps on the ladder. It doesn't matter how much faith he's got. The ladder's going to hold him. And it doesn't matter the first guy had all the faith in the world. That ladder's not going to hold him. It's the object of their faith, not their faith that actually brings rescue. That's what Romans says. That's what Paul says. It's not your faith. It's the object of your faith. Everybody has faith. So let me ask you, what are you trusting for your righteousness? What are you trusting for your resume before God? The one you build up, the one you know, resume you wrote yourself, you trust in that one? Or are you trusting that Jesus took your resume and gives you his resume? If you're trusting that one, Paul says, but God, now the righteousness has been given to you because of what Jesus has done. And the perception and perspective of God has changed forever. And you are declared a member of his family and forgiven forever. Those crazy, big, multi-syllable vocabulary words, they're like handles. Hold them tight. Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks for these crazy words, but most importantly... For the ideas, the concepts, and for the love of Jesus that are behind every one of them. And Lord, I pray that we would all give up the fruitless idea that we can somehow write our own resumes to gain favor with you. 
and help us to hand Jesus our resumes of condemnation, take his resume of commendation, and look forward to forgiveness and spending forever with you. We pray in his name. Amen.